Governor Doug Ducey has decided that state agencies will no longer be spending money on contract lobbyists. How much of that has to do with the simple negativity attached to the word lobbyist? I'm Steve Goldstein. On today's Here and Now, I'll check in with political scientist Thomas Holyoke about why lobbyists are criticized so intensely and whether Ducey's move will have any impact. Holyoke is the author of The Ethical Lobbyist. Plus, the 2016 presidential campaign has already upended conventional wisdom. Now there's talk among some analysts that the libertarian ticket of former governors Gary Johnson and William Weld might be the most sensible and practical one. We'll talk about libertarian philosophies and why they haven't traditionally garnered much momentum. Also, author and Morrison Institute director Tom Riley has written a new book about the recent government problems of Bell, California. We'll find out what Riley learned about the corruption there. And today marks what would have been Frida Kahlo's 99th birthday. We'll talk about her continuing impact. Here and now is next on KJZZ. The news is first. It's KJZZ's Here and Now. Good morning. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. Coming up this hour, Governor Doug Ducey has decided that state agencies will no longer be spending money on contract lobbyists. How much of that has to do with the simple negativity attached to the word lobbyist? I'll talk with Thomas Holyoke. He's the author of The Ethical Lobbyist. Plus, we'll talk about libertarian philosophies and why the libertarian presidential ticket may cause some states to shift in November. And today marks what would have been Frida Kahlo's 99th birthday. We'll talk about the artist's continuing impact. We start today's program with computer problems and candidates who are trying to get public financing for their campaigns. And for more information, I turn to our resident political IT guy, Howie Fisher of Capital Media Services. Howie, good morning. If I'm the IT guy, you're in trouble. Well, that's why I said political IT guy, because I think you're going to help us fix all these bugs and viruses, I hope, right? Well, we'll, we'll, we'll give it a shot. <laughs> this, has been, this has been a fascinating problem, because uh, year, for years now, the legislature has allowed certain things to happen online, registering to vote, making donations, and obviously giving money for clean elections candidates. But now the website that the clean elections candidates need for those $5 donations has gone down because of an apparent hack. Well, is there an explanation, though, beyond a, a possible hack? Have they actually said what the problem is and why the website's been down? Oh, it's been about a week or so, right? It's been about a week. What happened, according to Matt Roberts, who's a spokesman for the, uh, the Secretary of State's office, is that they got a contact from the FBI saying that there was a, quote, credible and serious threat to the integrity of the voter registration system. And when the FBI calls you and says, you may have a problem, the first thing you do is you take the system down. Now, the voter registration system in and of itself is not used by the public, but what it does do is it interfaces with the donations because you need to make sure that the people who are giving to you are, in fact, registered voters. And so in taking down the voter registration system, you take down any ability of people to give those $5 donations online. Now, this was supposed to be fixed at the end of last week, and when I checked with the Secretary of State's office yesterday, they said, it's the end of the week. And I said, wait, you told me that last week. Well, <laughs> yeah, we're working on it. Sort of the, the check is in the mail and I'll respect you in the morning, I guess. So do we have to go old fashioned on this? What other options do candidates have? Well, candidates have always been able to get $5 donations in checks or cash on a face-to-face basis. And you fill out these paper forms and it's obviously much more time consuming. The other problem becomes is if somebody fills out a paper form, you're not sure if in fact they are registered to vote. Whereas if you give online, it's, it's basically self-executing, where they determine immediately if, in fact, you make the number of qualified signatures they need and the qualified donations. And, you know, they, these are, you know, for legislative candidates, it's, you need at least 250 of these $5 donations. 
statewide race like the Corporation Commission takes 1,700. And, of course, given things that can go wrong, you really want a, a, a squish factor in there perhaps of 20 25%. Uh, and this is important because if you really want to run with public money, and it's not a lot, but it beats going out and you know checking with you know these special interest groups on both sides, uh, this is the way to go. Now, Howie, finally, I have to use one of my favorite words, especially when it comes to politics and government, and that is perception. In any way, is does this look bad? Does this look like an elections-related mix-up, which of course we've had others before, or is it clearly much more innocent than that? I believe it's much more innocent than that. But having said that, let's just say the Secretary of State's office, Michelle Reagan, or snake bit. It's almost like anything they touch has turned to horse manure. And it, it, it's sort of unfortunate that even the innocent mistakes, the things that they have no control over, everybody's looking at them and saying, wait a second, well, what happened to the presidential preference primary? Well, what happened in a special election? And and uh, then, of course, the the other half of that is people say, well, of course, things are going wrong because you spent all of last year trying to loosen the rules on dark money versus doing your job, like putting out the elections manual. So there's certainly a lot of scrutiny on the secretary of state's office. And uh, some of it is deserved. Some of it may just be innocent. Howie Fisher of Capital Media Services. He is the dean of the Capital Press Corps. Howie, have a good day. Thanks. And I'll be back uh, doing more IT later. <laughs> See you later. You're listening to KJZZ's Here and Now in Phoenix. I'm Steve Goldstein. The word lobbyist seems to be one that causes most Americans to shake their heads and wonder. The term has become pejorative and brings to mind shady deal-making and unfairness. And last week, Governor Doug Ducey issued an executive order eliminating the ability of state agencies to spend public money on contract lobbyists. Ducey says he's hoping to curb what he considers the influence of special interests, as Governor spokesman Daniel Scarpinato told KJZZ. The governor fundamentally doesn't believe that um, lobbyists at our capital should be getting rich on the backs of taxpayers. To talk more about lobbyists, I'm joined by the author of the book, The Ethical Lobbyist, Thomas Holyoke. He's also a political scientist at Fresno State University. Professor Holyoke, to what extent is lobbyist considered a pejorative by the general public? How often is it used that way by elected officials to try to make a point? Um, it's enough of a pejorative that almost no lobbyist will put the word on his or her business card. Wow. Um, put it that way. So instead, you find rather innocuous uh, titles like, you know, uh, vice president for governmental relations or legislative liaison or something like that. But uh, never lobbyist, because you know the, the, the lobbyists themselves know how poorly the public thinks of the profession and themselves, so they don't want to advertise it. Well, so what, even the fact that the name of your book, The Ethical Lobbyist, uh, which for some people just <laughs> is, a contra- <laughs> is a contradiction, I mean, just, just based on the fact that it is. So, sure. so based on the work you've done and just your perception as a, as a political scientist, why do people have this feeling about it? Why do they feel like, oh my gosh, lobbyist means something negative? Well, the whole concern that the public has is that the lobbyist is somebody who is acting on behalf of wealthy, well-heeled interests, as they often are. Uh, But to get something from the public taxpayer for those special interests, so that is whatever the special interests get through the lobbyist efforts comes at taxpayer expense. 
and therefore the lobbyist is someone somehow nefarious who is convincing apparently weak-willed and spineless lawmakers to give rich, wealthy special interests, uh, you know, taxpayer benefits, and the poor taxpayer is unable to do anything about it. And that's why it's interesting here in Arizona what Governor Ducey did last week, uh, the executive action to take away state agencies' ability to hire contract lobbyists. What do you make of that sort of action in a general sense? I mean, is that something that, that again, is, is sort of this idea that, well, people don't feel good about lobbyists, so I'll take this action? Is this something we would expect in other states? And would you expect, if it were, would it happen in states that have Republican governors as opposed to Democratic? Um. Republican-Democrat doesn't really make much difference as far as uh, the history of lobbying regulation goes or the history of rather ineffectual lobbying regulation goes. I mean, depending on um, you know how much teeth are in the actual prohibition, I mean, this could be a political stunt, it could be meaningful, but even a lot of meaningful bars against hiring lobbyists tend to have exploitable loopholes in them, or sometimes it's, you know, a restriction is just shoved aside. I'll give you an example of that at, at, at the federal level. When Barack Obama became president of the United States, he actually you know, issued an executive order to the, uh, the federal agencies saying you will not hire registered lobbyists um, for senior positions, and I'm not going to appoint them unless they are really the only qualified person. Well, as it turns out, there were several lobbyists who turned out to be the only qualified person, <laughs> and Barack Obama, in fact, did hire them into his agencies. And even more interesting, another little loophole that showed up is that uh, many that the president's executive order said that only registered lobbyists, that is, lobbyists who have formally registered as lobbyists with Congress, would be barred from being hired by executive branch agencies. Well, it turned out many lobbyists um, let their formal registration lapse so that they uh, could get around the restriction by not being formally registered lobbyists. It's KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. That's the voice of Thomas Holyoke, who's a political scientist at Fresno State. He's also the author of the book, The Ethical Lobbyist. Last week, Governor Doug Ducey took an executive action to try to curb public money being spent on contract lobbyists. We're talking about that in the more general sense. Thomas, let's talk about local elected officials like governors. If they really strongly believe this, and I, and I don't know what Arizona's specific policy is on this, but a governor like Governor Ducey or any other governor, if they feel like lobbying is a negative in that sense, should they also feel that lobbying shouldn't necessarily be done on the state's behalf in Washington? I mean, should they also say, well, we really shouldn't be spending state money on that either? And I'm not exactly sure how many states do that, but I'm sure there is some sort of thing going on there. Well, the number of states that do that is 50. Um, all the states, <laughs> no, seriously, all the states um, lobby in Washington, D.C. They do it uh, directly by opening up lobbying offices. There's suspect there's a, a state of Arizona office somewhere in uh, Washington, D.C., where lobbyists on behalf of state government uh, reside. They also do it through other organizations like the National Governors Association or the National Conference of State Legislatures. Um, and you know, there's a certain amount of pressure to do that. I mean, a state can say, okay, we're not going to spend any money in trying to get Washington, D.C. to do anything for us, but then the state may well be missing out on a great deal of federal money, money that could come in for social services, money that could come in for you know, health care plans, or even money that could come in for something like to you know, shore up the Central Arizona Project, you know, mm -hmm. the big canal bringing you water. 
So is this then one of those things where it's just part of the human condition we're allowed to be contradictory on things like this? Oh, with, with lobbying, this happens all the time. Um, on the one hand, yeah we, yeah, we see lobbying as kind of a pejorative. We wouldn't want to be lobbyists, wouldn't want to actually engage in any kind of lobbying. But on the other hand, sometimes you need something that looks and feels an awful lot like lobbying to get, I suppose, what you might consider to be your fair share out of government. And the risk you take by not doing it is that, well, everyone else is doing it. Right. That's that's the excuse. Well, it's the excuse for so many things, right, that we do in, in life. Yeah. This certainly couldn't happen overnight, but lobbyists presumably are swimming upstream on this, at least as far as perception goes. Are there certain reforms that you think would make sense that not only would actually help how things work in general, but would also help how lobbyists are seen? Well, this is something I get to a bit in uh, The Ethical Lobbyist, that book. Um, the idea is, I present there, which I believe is that lobbying shouldn't be banned. In fact, Really, lobbying cannot be banned. It's actually protected by the First Amendment's right to petition government for a redress of grievances clause. Um, What I argue is that lobbying needs to be made a lot more transparent, that we need to have a much better idea – the public needs to have a much better idea as to who is lobbying, what they are lobbying for – on whose behalf they are lobbying, how much money they are spending in their lobbying, who they are targeting for their lobbying in terms of like members of Congress, executive branch agencies, and the president, or say in the case of Arizona, the governor, who in the state legislature, who in uh, executive branch agencies there. You know, all that needs to be made transparent so the public can draw a proper image and draw proper conclusions as to whether anything nefarious has gone on. Professor, what do you think the potential impact of Governor Ducey's executive action could be? The, the history of the United States and the history of many states in the United States is full of what appear to be attempts at reforming lobbying, and most of them are relatively toothless. And again, I've not not looked exactly at what Governor Ducey has done, but if it falls in the long American tradition of toothless lobbying reform, I wouldn't expect a whole lot of change. But I could also be an optimist and hope that Arizona will be the standout. (laughs) Thomas Holyoke is the author of The Ethical Lobbyist. He's also a political scientist at Fresno State. Professor, thanks for the time. Sure, thank you. And still to come on here and now, we'll talk about libertarians, and we'll also find out about government corruption in Bell, California. Stay with us. KJZZ is supported by Wells Fargo, investing in communities throughout Arizona with the belief that small measures can have meaning for the people they serve. More at wellsfargo.com. Together, we'll go far. This is Here and Now on KJZZ. We're at 91.5 online at kjzz.org and on our mobile app. Taking a look at some temperatures around the state right now, 91 degrees in Tucson, it's 99 in Casa Grande, 82 in Prescott, 72 up in Flagstaff and down in Yuma, 97 degrees. Well, a special thank you to our Leadership Society members, Ross and Shirley Berg, as well as Karsten's Family Funds for their generous support in bringing programs like Here and Now and All Things Considered to KJZZ. To join the Leadership Society and impact our community every day, please visit leadership.kjzz.org. We've got 25% relative humidity right now in the valley. It's mostly sunny, 96 degrees in Phoenix at 1121.
You're listening to KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. The Libertarian Party in Arizona has had a loyal number of members for many years, but winning elections has not happened. And though that isn't expected to change this fall, the party at the national level is getting a growing amount of positive attention. The presidential ticket featuring former governors Gary Johnson and William Weld is being called a potential spoiler by some analysts. To learn more about libertarians, I'm joined by Matt Zulinski, professor of philosophy and co-director of the Institute for Law and Philosophy at the University of San Diego. Matt, let's start by defining our terms. Uh, What does a libertarian believe? Libertarians believe in minimizing the size and scope of government and uh, and maximizing individuals' freedom to live their own lives as they see fit, uh, both economically and socially. So libertarians think most of what the government does would be better done on a private, voluntary basis, or perhaps not done at all. So uh, for instance, government should get out of the war on drugs, uh, get out of the war in Iraq, get out of the business of propping up banks and other large corporations, and allow free people to solve problems on their own through the uh, free market and through voluntary cooperation. How much of an overlap, Matt, if any, do we see with the today's Republican Party or today's Democratic Party? Does either does either of those parties in their platform um, give any sort of heft in any real way to those issues, in your opinion? Well, that's a really interesting question, because at least historically in the United States, libertarianism has been much more closely associated with the Republican Party than with the Democratic Party, uh, much more closely aligned with the political right than with the left. But I think that's actually a bit of a historical accident. Um, If you trace libertarianism back to its origins in Britain and France all the way back in the 19th century, what you find there is, is actually a surprisingly progressive doctrine Uh, on issue after issue, whether it was military imperialism or slavery or racism or sexism, uh, libertarians were on the side of the downtrodden and the oppressed and against the privileged elites. It was about as unconservative an ideology as you can get. That started to change in the beginning of the 20th century with uh, the rise of international communism. That phenomenon, I think, really drove libertarians into a kind of alliance with the political right Um, simply by virtue of their common enemy. There were always tensions there, and you see that if you look back, for instance, at the early days of National Review and the kind of um, arguments that uh, that Bill Buckley and and Murray Rothbard would get into. But, But a lot of people in both the libertarian and conservative camps thought that communism was the single greatest threat facing mankind. So all the other issues that libertarians used to believe in, especially those that didn't fit well within a conservative ideology, kind of fell by the wayside. That's starting to change now. Uh, It's still the case, I think, that most people who self-identify as libertarians come from the Republican Party. Nobody's really raised libertarian. You're sort of (laughs) raised in one of the two major parties, and then you discover it. Uh, And for the most part, people are coming from the Republican Party. Um, But you're getting more and more people who self-identify as progressives who are coming into libertarianism and seeing something there that's appealing to them. So when we consider how much momentum the Tea Party got. And even if we look at the presidential race in 2016, how Bernie Sanders on the far left was able to to get a lot of momentum. It doesn't seem as though libertarianism, at least in any way um, at the elected level, has gained sort of momentum. It doesn't seem like there's been a candidate, whether whether winning or losing an election, that really has grabbed the public's um, vigor, the public's attention. Well, I'd say the closest you got to something like that happening was the Ron Paul phenomenon a few years back. So, um, Ron Paul ran for president a few times and uh, and didn't do all that well in the uh, 
election, of course, but nobody really expected that he would. Uh, what's significant about the Paul phenomenon, as I think what's significant about the Sanders phenomenon, is the kind of movement um, that he built in his wake. Paul attracted a lot of young people to libertarianism. Uh, people started reading people like, you know, thinkers like Friedrich Hayek and, and, uh, and Ayn Rand and Murray Rothbard, who never would have heard of those thinkers before, precisely because uh, Paul introduced them to those ideas. The way the political system is set up in the United States, it's very, very difficult for third parties to do well in an election of any size. And so I think at this stage, the way you have to measure success in these kind of ideological fringe movements, whether it's socialism or the Green Party or libertarianism, is by how they fare in the marketplace of ideas. To some, there was uh, too much of a takeover of the Republican House, in essence, leading to John Boehner leaving uh, because of pressure from a Tea Party faction. Is there a reason um, that there wouldn't be sort of a similar libertarian faction that may be able to move the party or another party, perhaps the Democratic Party, in a particular direction that would seem more libertarian? Is there something philosophically about libertarianism that may not lend itself to that sort of momentum? Well, you have a certain segment of libertarians, again, and this is something that's true of, of most fringe, small ideologies, that's very purist. Uh, they, they're attracted to the ideas because it's a, it's a beautiful theory, they like consistency, uh, and that kind of mindset doesn't do well in politics precisely because politics requires compromise. Uh, but I don't think that's unique to libertarianism. And I think you're right that there is a potential here for a movement to push the Republican Party, or perhaps the Democratic Party, in a more liberty-friendly direction. So there are a lot of interesting crossover issues where libertarians uh, have common cause with people on the left, for instance. So immigration reform is something that libertarians could push Republicans to move in a more democratic direction on. Uh, the war on drugs, prison reform, again, these are characteristically democratic issues, but ones that libertarians feel quite strongly about. Uh, and then on the other side, of course, libertarians think that the economy is too heavily regulated, the taxes are too high, the transfer payments are ineffective and perhaps immoral. Uh, and those would be issues on which you could perhaps push Democrats more towards the Republican side. So if the movement builds enough momentum, yeah, there's a significant possibility that not that a libertarian would be elected, but that they'll have some actual impact on politics. It's KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix talking with Matt Zwolinski, professor of philosophy and co-director of the Institute for Law and Philosophy at the University of San Diego. Matt, I wonder the way the parties are set up, and of course, we always hear about how, how split, almost evenly split, the electorate is uh, leaning toward Republicans or leaning toward Democrats. Are we in a situation now where almost because of, of those disparate philosophies that there seems to be less crossover than there used to be? Is that one complication of what you're talking about with libertarianism? Because as you said, on some, uh, they traditionally would line up with with how Democrats may feel or progressives, and then on the other side, how more conservatives or Republicans might feel. Does that in and of itself cause complications because maybe people are looking for simpler answers? It does, yeah. I mean, people like simple answers, uh, and libertarians, uh, they have their share of simple answers, but the simple <laughs> answers tend not to be uh, all that politically palatable. Um, I think where libertarians are at their best, really, is uh, when they offer, when they try to reach across the aisle, when they try to suggest ways in which libertarian ideas uh, might be appealing to somebody who necessarily doesn't necessarily buy into the entire libertarian framework, uh, but can see the value um, in libertarian solutions to specific kinds of political problems. 
the ticket of former governors Gary Johnson and William Weld is getting a lot more attention, I think, than the average libertarian would when Gary Johnson has run in the past. He's gotten maybe a little bit of attention here in the West, but not so much nationally. And yet there's a lot of, it seems like there's a lot of curiosity related to, to that ticket. What do you make of that? Well, there's a couple of things. So first of all, Johnson and Weld are two of the most politically experienced candidates that the Libertarian Party has ever put forward. Um, they are relatively moderate in their libertarianism, uh, and they have practical governing experience. So they're a credible ticket just on their records. Second, by comparison to the other candidates uh, that seem to be about to clinch their party's nominations, uh, they look pretty reasonable and attractive to a lot of people. Uh, Clinton and Trump are both um, extremely polarizing candidates. Um, and so there are a lot of people out there who are looking for some kind of alternative. Uh, and so if they can land upon a Libertarian Party ticket, that is both a, fairly experienced, and B, I should mention, uh, has ballot access in all 50 states, that l starts to look pretty good. Now, Matt, are you actually officially a libertarian yourself? I think I'm registered libertarian, yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, so, so, what, so what do you, as a, as a registered libertarian, what do you think about this ticket? If I had to judge it on ideological purity, right, and, uh, and uh, compare this ticket to other tickets that the Libertarian Party has put forward in the past, then maybe it wouldn't fare so well. And a lot of people are complaining about Johnson and especially about Wells, uh, that they aren't real libertarians because they deviate on this or that issue. Um, I don't think that's surprising, and I don't think we should put too much stock on that. Uh, as I said, libertarianism has a lot of purists. Um, but you don't win a general election by appealing to purists. Uh, you don't even get the 15% polling numbers you need to get into the national debates by appealing to purists. You win by showing people who aren't already committed libertarians what your worldview has to offer. Mads Walensky is a professor of philosophy and co-director of the Institute for Law and Philosophy at the University of San Diego. We've been talking about libertarians. It's KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. Concerns about government corruption are not limited to certain cities, states, or even countries. But the situation in Bell, California a few years ago sounds like it was pulled from the plot of a TV miniseries or exaggerated film script. The town, which had fewer than 40,000 residents, had a chief administrative officer making $1.5 million a year in cash and other benefits. And the police chief was pulling in more than three-quarters of a million annually. In his recently published book, The Failure of Governance in Bell, California, Big-Time Corruption in a Small Town, Morrison Institute Director Tom Riley explores what went wrong, and Tom Riley joins me now. Tom, good morning. Thanks for having me. So as I said, this sounds like a plot of a TV show from the 70s. Um, what are the conditions that led to this? Well, it, the story was a bit unreal. I mean, we had a this massive extraction of revenue from a city uh, by the city administrator and his assistant and other top executives. And anyone that could have, should have done something was either looking the other way or, or part of it. It was this kind of this massive culture of corruption and everyone seemed to be complicit one way or the other. Well, so describe Bell, California for us. It's, it's a suburb of LA, right? Yeah, it's, it's uh, about 2.81 square miles, about 35,000 residents. It's located southeast of downtown LA. Um, it's one of 88 cities in L.A. County. It's one of the poorest in L.A. County. Uh, its annual family income is about 28000 
about 90% of the city is Latino, and a sizable number of the residents in the uh, uh, county in the city were not there legally. So tell us about this uh, this city manager or chief administrative officer. What? How long was he in this position? What, was there any background to suggest that he would do something like this? Did he start out as a good government guy and then just went off the rails? Well, he, he actually started in Bell in 1993, and then he ended his tenure uh, when he was indicted in 2010. He had served as a city manager in a couple other cities in California before that. Now, some of this kind of came out after he left, um, that there was some um, wrongdoings happening. But, you know, when he first came to Bell, um, he actually was kind of hailed as someone who kind of cleaned up the city, who um, uh, response time from police was better, graffiti was cleaned up, there was more recreational facilities for youth. Um, and in many ways, he was seen as, as, as helping this, this poor community out. Um, in 2005, uh, he convinced the city council to actually become a charter city, which freed him up and the city from a lot of the oversight of California. And during that, um, he, he, they passed it. Uh, it was passed in a very uh, odd circumstances. Um, less than 1% of the individuals actually passed a ballot initiative. A good percent of those were absentee. Um, but when he passed it, he actually, you know, began kind of raising his salary and, and, and those of the um, city council over a period of time. And I think, you know, when you, when you looked into the city of Bell, it, it, trying to understand, you know, there was no record keeping. So it was just kind of an un- incomprehensible system of governance. Uh, when they would put items on the city council agenda, the backup wouldn't meet the, um, the agenda item. Um, <clears throat> uh, Rizzo created... Um, five phantom agencies to actually hide his salary and his benefits. He uh, hired an individual by the name of Angela Spatia um, about, you know, 2004, 2005. And she actually just spent a majority of her time just figuring out how to develop their, you know, enhanced retirement system. And what was sad is that what they did is they just extracted revenue in every means possible from the community. Uh, Bell now has a second highest property tax in L.A. County, higher than Beverly Hills. Wow. They uh, uh, shook down businesses and drove all the businesses out. Um, they even developed a system with the, with the police where they would uh, target um, large portion of the immigrant population. They would target cars with paint or lawn maintenance facilities and actually uh, impound the cars because many residents were not there legally or they knew others. They didn't challenge that. The, the impounding of the cars was that of three and four times that a rate of L.A. County. So they just figured out, you know, there's massive ways to extract uh, revenue. And when people attempted to say, hey, something's not going right here, they, they basically lied to citizens. I'm kind of stunned by the fact that this went on for as long as it did. Now, now considering where we're at now, um, you can never, we can't do the never say never situation because any of these things could happen again. Were any reforms put in place, not just in Bell, but even in other cities when people heard about Bell to say, you know, we really need to make sure as close as we can that something like this doesn't happen again? Yeah, there were. You know, I, I point out in the book, too, is that there was, it wasn't like people weren't trying to call individuals to the attention. There were there's letters written to the district attorney, the attorney general, uh, to police and others. Um, and I think that, you know, one of the things that occurred, you know, city government can be very challenging and, 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 and hard to follow. Um, the LA Times had pulled out of most of the cities um, and, and weren't covering it. So there was no media oversight at the time. Uh, attendance at city council meetings were seven or eight 
individuals. As I said, you know, the, the agenda items didn't reflect what they were actually passing. At one time, there was a gentleman who actually got the courage up. You know, one of the things that um, Rizzo and some of his assistants did is that they, uh, you know, created imaginary capital projects. They, they passed a bond in order to develop a sports complex. Well, after years and years, this gentleman gets up there and says, you know, hey, whatever happened to that sports complex? And they just said, oh, you know, construction. And, and then he said, by the way, I think, aren't you folks making a lot of money? And they kind of just, you know, glossed over that. When he finally made a public records request, they actually provided false information. You know, as I said, uh, Rizzo created five phantom agencies to hide his salary. So he had one um, agency that just was his city administrator uh, salary. Well, Tom, is this just greed? Well, it was. And, you know, I, 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 I think what struck me is that, you know, there's two basic forms of government in the United States. There's a strong mayor and a council manager form of government. A strong mayor is what we find in most of our major cities. Mm-hmm. Um, in Arizona, we have a council manager form of government where the, um, the elected body appoints a city or county manager to run the city. And this form of government was actually established to combat corruption. So one of the things that made me very interested was, you know, how did this form of corruption happen there? And, you know, where it is true that many of the elected individuals were not well educated, most of the the city manager and his staff was very well educated with masters in public administration, et cetera. And, you know, the fact that everybody seemed to be looking the other way, there was, you know, outside attorneys that were hired in this small town over a three-year period, they billed about $3 million. And these attorneys were actually involved in every element of this corruption. I mean, the corruption is almost just unbelievable. They, for example, they had a loan program that the, almost all the city employees and the elected officials participated in, and they would receive these loans from collateral from their vacation and sick leave. Uh, in fact, Rizzo, you know, had 183 hours of uh, days, excuse me, of annual and and um, sick leave, and keep in mind, you can only work like 240 a year, right. and he was cashing them out, you know, uh, uh, on a bi-weekly basis. Tom, I'm, I'm sort of chuckling, but it's, it's <clears throat> frankly, really disturbing that this happened. We just have about a minute or so left. So I want to, how concerned are you in general with all the work you've done in government, what you looked into in Bell, about government corruption at any level? I mean, is, where are we at right now in terms of one through 10. Are we getting better? Or is it getting worse? Well, I think, the, you know, first of all, that the vast majority of individuals and elected officials are honest public servants. But if we look at over the last 20 years, on average, there's been about 1,013 public officials who are convicted annually of bribery, fraud, perjury, and or theft. Mm-hmm. And so there's a fair amount of routine corruption going there. And I think that when you look at all the multiple forms of government, as I said, you know, LA County has 88 cities, you know, there's over 50 counties, there's 1,000 school districts in California. Elsewhere, when you look at all these multiple forms of government and you don't have media presence and you don't have individuals that are engaged in what's happening, then a lot of things can slip through. Tom Riley is director of the Morrison Institute. He's also the author of the newly published book, The Failure of Governance in Bell, California, Big Time Corruption in a Small Town. Really a bizarre story. Tom, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. And still to come on here and now, we'll meet Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. We'll also talk about the 99th birthday of Frida Kahlo. Stay with us. KJZZ is supported by the Arizona Heritage Center and Museum at Papago Park, presenting summer programs for children's age 6 through 12 with educational and fun hands-on activities on Tuesdays and Saturdays. ArizonaHistoricalSociety.org. 
Good morning. You're listening to KJZZ's Here and Now. NPR's Here and Now from Boston is coming up at noon. Protesters are demanding the police chief of Baton Rouge, Louisiana, be fired after the shooting by officers of a 37-year-old black man. And sports analyst Mike Pesco will tell us if Rio is really ready for the Summer Olympics, which are just a month away. That's all coming up in less than 20 minutes on KJZZ. Valley forecast calling for a high near 108 degrees. That's right around average for today and about the same for the next several days and on into the weekend. We should see sunny skies, highs hovering right around 107 to 108 degrees. It's mostly sunny, 96 degrees right now in Phoenix at 1142. I view the primary responsibility You're listening to KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. The Valley's becoming even more diverse as younger people of color and different backgrounds are born here and are moving here as well. That diverse population also applies to religious backgrounds and faiths. Today, as part of our effort to talk with a variety of community leaders, we're joined by Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. He's the president and dean of Valley Beit Midrash. He's written op-ed columns for the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. He's also been listed as one of the most influential rabbis in the U.S., We started our conversation by talking with the rabbi about what the role of a rabbi is and what he or she is supposed to be offering to congregants in the context of the broader community. I view the primary responsibility of a rabbi, and really of all clergy, is uh, to be on the front lines of defending the most vulnerable. Now, that can be done in a lot of different ways, visiting people in hospitals, standing with people at funerals, but also on a societal level of being a voice for compassion and empathy. Why was Judaism your your chosen religion? I mean, your background is not exclusively Jewish. So why did you think that was the right way Mm -hmm. for you? And also, there's Reform Judaism, there's Conservative, Mm -hmm. there is Orthodox. And I think maybe the average person might be concerned when they hear the word Orthodox really in any religion. But what path have you chosen when it comes to that? Mm -hmm. So I was very fortunate to grow up in a home with a very loving mother who was and is an evangelical Christian, and a very loving father who was and is a Reformed Jew. And they gave me the choice, which is not normally how I counsel families today. So it's important to have kind of a unified front, but they gave me the choice. And around the age of 11, I made a choice. And I had a conservative conversion. In my context, it was understood that Judaism was passed through the mother. And then some decade later, I had an Orthodox conversion as well. It's not common to have two conversions, but Judaism is quite fragmented today in perspective. So there's some conversion challenges. Now, I did that at the end of the day because I felt that Judaism was a religion of questions more than answers. I felt there was a culture of radical amazement and of doubt and skepticism which was about constant inquiry, constant discovery, constant search, rather than dogma, right? The Talmud, which is the classical work studied by Jewish students, is three quarters arguments, only one quarter narrative and stories. But it's back and forth arguments about issues rather than demands of belief. Now, I want to be clear, there are consistent beliefs that emerge throughout the tradition, but much more than that is a process that living by the halakha, what is often translated as Jewish law, actually translates as progress. It means to kind of walk forward. And so the notion of, of living by the tradition means constantly forward looking. 
And so I found deeply compelling the forward-looking vision of the religion and the very non-dogmatic process of searching for truth and relationship. Mm. So that's Judaism. In terms of orthodoxy, at one point I moved towards the ultra-orthodox sort of black hat world and found a lot of meaning there. I found a very gray world that was scary with abstracts and I wanted the absolutism of a black and white world. And I still have a lot of respect for that world, but it wasn't for me. What I found was that I wanted to move towards a modern orthodoxy or today what I'm a part of calling an open orthodoxy, which is trying to really kind of challenge some of the boundaries of the tradition in the name of being more inclusive and open and loving. You know, and that happens on the conversion issue, on the issue of feminism and women's inclusion, on the issue of relationships to other denominations and to other faiths and how we relate to Israel and how we speak critically and intellectually about about our own faith. From a practical sense, though, in order to survive, one would think that a religion as prominent as Judaism would need to get converts. And then maybe this is just anecdotal. It seems to me, though, I meet a lot of people, maybe these are just pop culture folks, Mm -hmm. who are, we used to hear the term lapsed Catholic a lot. Now we hear sort of Jewish in cultural ways, but not in religious ways. Mm -hmm. It's almost like, well, of course I'm I'm Jewish, but I don't go to temple, I'm not interested in that sort of thing. Is that a legitimate trend we actually see? And how does, how does one reverse that? Is it, can it be reversed? Mm-hmm. I don't propose to have the answer to how Jews have survived over the last 2,000 years. For me, it's a fidelity to the tradition and to study, to be intellectually and spiritually engaged in what's meaningful. But I think I have to say that Judaism is not a religion. Judaism is a culture and a people far beyond the religious beliefs and practices. And so someone is not a bad Jew if they're not observant, right? That Judaism has a language, a country. It has texts. It has practices. It has history. And it has spirituality. And there's so many different ways to be Jewish. I affirmed mine of modern orthodoxy because I find the religious practices to be so transformational. They enable me to thrive in life. They help me to have a stronger marriage, to offer more to society, to have a rich spiritual life. But for someone that hasn't worked for, first I would say, well, come experience something really powerful. I want to do outreach and bring you in to experience the most powerful aspect of our tradition. But for someone that that still doesn't speak to them, I'd say, wonderful, make your own contribution. I don't want to speak for another religion. If I say I don't believe in Jesus Christ, then I might say I'm not a Christian, right? If I say I'm a Jew, but I don't believe the Torah is from God, right? And I don't even know if I believe in God. I can still proudly and with legitimacy say I'm a Jew. There's no dogma connected to the identity. How important is tradition to what Judaism is about, to what the culture, related culture is about? And where does something like keeping kosher play into that? Where does it, I mean, is that something that in any way holds the culture, holds the religion back? Tradition has been mistaught for too long as a vehicle for submission. But actually, Jewish ritual is a vehicle for protest. It's a a vehicle for rebellion. Shabbat, observing the Sabbath, which, which I and my family do, turn off our phones, don't drive cars, all electricity we're not using, is not submitting to the biblical understanding of Shabbat. Rather, it is a protest against the rat race of the conformity of society. Keeping kosher for me is not about submitting to the laws of Torah. Rather, it is about rebelling against unconscious, unethical eating. 
How do we think about fair trade? How do we think about worker rights? How do we think about animal treatment? How do we think about the environmental impact? How do we think about the health of our bodies? Right? How do we think about GMOs? Right? How do we, when, with every act of eating, become more ethically and spiritually conscious of what we're doing in the world? And for me, kashrut is a deeply transformative vehicle to have that reminder. I don't know if this applies to, to people who are not necessarily of this faith or just generally. Israel's a little controversial when you think about um, some of the things that have gone on there, whether it's with um, the West Bank, whether it's with Palestinians, whether it's just this idea of people having a homeland in a place that was arguably to some not a homeland. How do, how do we reconcile all these things mm-hmm. so that uh, Israel for many, because I think people would like Israel to be a legitimate discussion point where someone is still a loyal Jew, but feels free to say, well, not everything Israel does is perfect. Mm-hmm. How, is this another where we have to almost be Solomonic and sort of find find the middle ground here? I'm glad we have four hours left for this answer. Um, <laughs> I, I'm going to try to break that down into two minutes. <laughs> There's two very dangerous extremes today around the Israel issue from within the Jewish perspective. One that says... Israel does nothing wrong. There was a Holocaust, and so we have to be secure, and everything Israel does is right, and the rest of the world is wrong, and the Palestinians are evil. Then there's another extreme which says Israel is fundamentally corrupt, is fundamentally like a South African apartheid state, and should have never moved there in the first place. And a deep insecurity with relating to or defending the state of Israel. I think both of those extremes are very, very dangerous. Now, as a Zionist, I'm aware of my own bias that I lean towards the Zionist narrative very heavily. But there's another narrative, and I think we have to hear that and cultivate empathy here as well, and to understand that this is very, very complex. And it's very difficult to hold a position if one is not deeply invested in understanding both stories. And so I think the first stage for anyone that wants to be involved is to really be willing to listen to all sides of the narrative. Now, I say, oh, there's not the Israeli and the Palestinian side. It's a very complex puzzle. But Jewishly, Abraham challenges God. And we are asked to challenge any authority for the sake of truth and justice. Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz is president and dean of Phoenix-based Valley Beit Midrash. You're listening to KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. Legendary artist Frida Kahlo was born 109 years ago today in Mexico. She was especially well-known for her self-portraits. A quote attributed to Kahlo reads, I paint myself because I'm so often alone and because I'm the subject I know best. Her huge impact on art, especially in the Southwest, continues to this day. And coming up on Saturday at the Heard Museum, the Phoenix Fridas will host the Fiesta de Frida. It will include an art exhibition and even a look-alike contest. With me to talk more about Frida Kahlo is Carmen Guerrero, a member of the Phoenix Fridas. Carmen, welcome. Thanks for being here. Thank you for inviting me. Well, a little bit of background first. Phoenix Fridas is a very catchy name. How did that get started? Oh, that got started in 2003. There was a big movement nationwide of crafters, and all these communities have really cute names, like Austin. They have the Austin Craft Mafias, and in New Jersey, they had a place called the Craft Bandidas. Mm. So my girlfriend, Kathy Murillo, 
called one day and said, hey, what do you think if we start a group called the Phoenix Fridas? And of course, how can you not love that? We are from Phoenix. We are hot. You know, we endure all this heat. So the Phoenix Fridas were born, you know, 12 years ago. And how many members do you have now? Right now, there's nine women okay. artists, members of the Phoenix Fridas. And representing all different kinds of art. Different kinds of art. You know, there's painters, there's quilters, there's people who does uh, assemblage or... Um, different types of art. I do beadwork, right. and another girlfriend, Gloria, also does beadwork. So we have different types of art. So describe a little bit what you're wearing today. I don't want to put pressure on you, but is, is the earrings, are those influenced by Frida at all? Oh, these are my beadworks. Okay. So I'm influenced by not a lot of native patterns. Okay. So I, these are from the Huichol tribe. These are ojos de Dios, you know, God's eyes. But I'm sure Frida wore many different pieces of jewelry and very gaudy. She liked big things. Yeah. Now, yes. let's... Start first with the self-portrait that I mentioned in the intro. Mm -hmm. This idea that she was painting herself so often. What do you what do you make of that? What do you make of that as part of her continuing impact today? How much of that has stretched to to the current times? Well, she was the first selfie artist. That's what we say as the Frida's because she like she was alone. She was the subject she knew best. She had time to look at herself in the mirror and really paint and spend time painting it. It's not like a fast thing. She took months to create her portraits. Mm -hmm. And uh, when we look at today, everybody's into selfies. So she was the first one who started the selfie trend. Is there something about uh, the self-portraits that she did that, that reflects something about how she was feeling on a certain day? Do, do, they, do they all look similar, I guess is my question, or is there nuance? Are there differences? I, there are differences. Like I'm thinking of the one that she looks like a, a wounded deer in the forest, right. you know? So she's reflecting her pain, her sorrow, but also her face is always very stoic, but also very beautiful. It's like she is enduring that with grace and with dignity. Now, her growing popularity is not limited to artists, it's not limited to the Phoenix Fridas. I mean, this, is, this has been really a renaissance in many ways for oh, her. Oh, yes. What do you think brought that on? Well, she's a feminine icon. We don't have very many of them. Most of our leaders are male. Mm. And then Frida is like breaks the mold completely because she's an artist. She's handicapped. So she dealt with her handicap many times. She fighted to be respected and recognized in her own time as an artist. You know, there weren't very many women artists. Mm -hmm. When she went to Europe, she was hailed as a, you know, new artist. And she, you know, Salvador Dali fell totally in love with her. So anyway, she broke the mold in many ways. So I think that's why people see her, because uh, she endures because they identify with her struggles. She also attempted to live a normal life despite her injuries and handicaps. And her efforts to be a voice for the oppressed people in Mexico, you know, she was a member of the Communist Party, and she marched in the street. Now, how much of a part of mainstream pop culture in any sense is she? There was a film made about her not that many years mm -hmm. ago. I think uh, Salma Hayek may, yes. have, may have played her. And so that also illustrates we're trying to appeal to a broader audience. I mean, is that something that do you think, is she at her, at her peak right now, I guess, in your opinion, or do you think it could keep growing? I think she keeps growing. You know, when we started the Phoenix Frida, she was like the most popular Mexican artist. Now she's the most popular female artist, period. Mm -hmm. You know, people are collecting her artwork and they are worth millions of dollars. And people like Madonna, you know, buys her artwork and owns a couple of her originals. So does the Phoenix Art Museum. So she's been collected to a many, for, by many museums and I think she's going to grow because she's fun. You know, it's fun to look at her life and her love struggle. I mean, she's totally in love with a man who was unfaithful to her, but she had never wa wavered in the fact that she was dedicated to Diego. So people will appreciate that. Yeah, that dynamic with Diego Rivera is, is legendary. The fact mm -hmm. that they were married but didn't live in the, the same house, although it was connected 
by a pathway. How much does that sort of increase the interest in her, the fact that she was a very powerful woman and a very talented woman at the same time? And very independent. Mm -hmm. And then she got married twice to him. You know, she got married and divorced, and then she got married again mm -hmm. in San Francisco in 1940s. But anyway, she is. Uh, she also wanted to be remembered, and I think she conquered that. And who doesn't want to be remembered? Well, she passed yeah. away at such a young age. I mean, could at that oh, yes. time in the 1940s, would there have been any thought that she would have had this enduring impact? I don't think she ever thought she was going to have this much impact. You know, I think it's and any any of us did because I I was in Mexico in the 80s mm. and I went to visit her house and it was like, oh, you know about her? And then that's when Hayden Herrera came out with the first book about her, you know, in the early 80s. And then she became sort of like a na international known figure and her popularity has grown. And uh, yeah, she's an amazing character. And I think she had there's still room for her to grow. It's here now on KJZZ. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix, talking with Carmen Guerrero, a member of the Phoenix Fridas. And as I mentioned earlier, the group will host the Fiesta de Frida at the Heard Museum coming up on Saturday. Uh, Carmen, how many different kinds of art will we see? Oh, there's all kinds. Acrylics, beading, mixed media, fabric, applique. You're also going to see a collaborative piece between a fabric artist, Panchita, and the beading artist, Gloria, who worked together to create a vest, beautiful Frida vest, at the Heard Museum. We're also going to have Mariachi Passion, which is an all-women mariachi, and they're going to be singing between 11 and 2. We're going to tell stories and tell why we are inspired by Frida's. And then at 3.30, we're going to have this beautiful birthday cake that's being prepared by the Heard Museum Cafe. So, you know, we're going to celebrate Frida in big style. Now, how much of the art was inspired by Frida? How much is she actually reflected in some of the art? Will we see images of her? Oh, yes. We see images of her. We see her in different uh, s situations. And for instance, I'm inspired by her, not necessarily her portrait, because I'm a bead artist. She painted mandalas, flower mandalas. And one of her favorite quotes for me is, I paint flowers so they won't die. So my quote is, I bead flowers so they will not die. So I have beaded mandalas and beaded flower earrings. In, in inspira my inspiration from Frida are the flowers. Wow. Now, Carmen, finally, obviously a cake sounds good. The mm -hmm. art obviously is the main draw for people to come out. Mm -hmm. But I was struck by this idea of a lookalike contest. And, and forgive me for saying this, but I, when I picture Frida, I kind of think of the unibrow. I mean, it was, <laughs> what, what's the, what do you expect from the lookalike contest? Oh, yeah. There will be lots of women dressed in colorful outfits with flowers in their heads and unibrows. And also, I don't want you to forget that there's going to be making takes at the Heard Museum. We're going to make unibrows. We're going to make... Uh, pins that are have Frida's. We have all kinds of fun activities for people to make and take. But the first 25 people that show up uh, dressed as Frida's will get a swag bag from the Phoenix Frida's. And then we're going to have a little parade at 1130 where we show all these people who look alike Frida. Now, members of the Phoenix Frida's going to take part in this, even of, if they can't win the bag? Yeah, we're going to be dressed like Frida. Okay. So all of us have our different way, our different take of looking like Frida. <laughs> Carmen Guerrero is a member of the Phoenix Fridas. We've been talking about Saturday's event at the Heard Museum. The Phoenix Fridas will host the Fiesta de Frida, also marking the 109th birthday of legendary artist Frida Kahlo today. Carmen, thanks for coming in. Thank you for having me. And thank you very much for listening to today's program. Special thanks to senior producer Sarah Ventry and Bruce Drummond for their assistance on the program. If you want to hear my conversations with Thomas Holyoke on lobbyists or Tom Riley on government corruption, or Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz, or our conversation about Frida Kahlo, or even one of our previous programs, please go online to kjzz.org later this afternoon. You can also download the free KJZZ app to your smartphone. NPR's Here and Now is up next on member-supported KJZZ, FM Phoenix, and HD. I'm Steve Goldstein. Have a great rest of the day.
It's 12 o'clock. KJZZ is supported by The Persian Room, health-conscious Persian cuisine for lunch and dinner, plus catering for your special occasions and business events. The Persian Room on Scottsdale Road, one light north of Bell, 480-614-1414.